So this week's Shia was titled, Judaism is not a democracy. And I got some excited comments from people outside of the Shia. If I was finally going to discuss American politics uh, inside of one of my Shiaim, now that I'm speaking outside of the United States, and I'm sorry to disappoint whoever is really interested in American politics, I'm probably the least interested person in the world in American politics or politics in general. And this Shi'u has nothing to do with democracy in the sense of whether uh, America is a democracy, not a democracy, democratic rights, and everything to do with the first word in the sentence, which is Judaism, and how Judaism itself and Jewish observance is not a democracy. Last week, we gave ourselves permission to think, the ability to think differently about things than we may have thought about them in the past, and the ability to access sources that we otherwise may not have always felt comfortable accessing. One of the primary resources here in the Ben Midash, when we began our Shiviti night kolal here, uh, which we meet three times a week, Baruch Hashem, one of the first books that we studied almost cover to cover was the book Hamaspik Laovdeh Hashem by Rabbeinu Avraham, the son of the Rambam. Hamaspik Laovdeh Hashem, or otherwise the guide to serving God, was not written in Hebrew, was not written in English, was written in Arabic, uh, whose fancy title I'm not an expert in how to pronounce. This book seems to have made it to different Jewish circles in fragments. The book that we have today in front of us is not a complete manuscript. In fact, chapter 1, which I'm quoting from, is really chapter 4 of the original manuscript, and we've lost a tremendous amount of information from Rabbeinu Avraham, the son of the Rambam. Aside from there being something unique and special about studying from somebody who could say, hey, my dad, the Rambam said, which was fascinating. My father, my father is a great man, but the Rambam, he's not. To be able to say, this is first-hand experience. I spoke with my father, and he told me, this is the explanation of the Pasuk. <clears throat> it brings the Rambam to life for many of us who appreciate and who connect to the teachings of the Rambam. But there's another element to Rabbeinu Avraham the Rambam that gives another dynamic, another dimension perhaps to the teachings of Rabbeinu Avraham, and that is his involvement with a group that we call today Hasidei Mitzrayim. If they refer to themselves as such, we're not sure how much of their history which we've pieced together after the fact we truly know and truly did not know, I cannot say. But can I ask, how many of you have heard before of this group, Hasidei Mitzrayim, the pious of Egypt? You've heard of different Hasidim. So Hasidim, I think most people, they pop in their head as some kind of fuzzy hat or something like that. You know, my wife showed pictures last week. Uh, that's most likely what people think about when they think of Hasid. We know that there were before then Hasidei Ashkenaz, which were the pious of Germany, and they had their own unique approach to Judaism, much of which still haunts the Jewish community today. They were very dark time in Jewish history, if I could word this nicely. Many of the customs that many will observe in the coming three weeks are actually rooted in the teachings of Hasidei Ashkenaz and their effect on the Jewish community afterwards. It's how you explain something like how the Rambam didn't know about the restrictions of the nine days, but all of a sudden we have a whole list of do's and don'ts because there was a point in history where there were a group of people who were deeply involved in mourning uh, Jerusalem and the things that have to do with uh, the mourning side of Halakha, and that has its side effects until today. Before then, you may be familiar with Hasidim Harishonim, the early Hasidim, which we hear a lot about in the Talmud. So if you're familiar with Masechet Berachot, Hasidim Harishonim, how they would pray, they would meditate an hour before prayer, an hour during prayer, an hour after prayer, and these were also known as Hasidim. 
this group of Hasidim Mitzrayim, I, I put a Wikipedia entry in front of you in Hebrew because the English Wikipedia entry in Rabbi Avraham ben Rambam does not have any of this information in it. Hasidim Mitzrayim were a group of Jews who associated themselves with a spiritual philosophy which demanded two things from them. The first I have in bold here, Ora chayim shel metsuyanut datit umusarit shetachlito chidush hanevoah. Absolute religious perfection, as well as ethical perfection, you would think that those two things should be the same thing. But religious perfection in the sense of observant of halakha, of Torah, of mitzvot, as well as not losing the bigger picture of what is the headspace, what is the personality that a person who's absorbed in Torah should look like. We speak all too often about people who are religious, but they're not that, or they think that to be religious means to be a good person without any of those observances. Sorry, can I just ask? Sure. With religious, what, what word are you translating as religious? The word datit. Well, that doesn't really mean religious in the sense. Uh, the religio. What does datit mean to you? Okay, this article though is written in modern Israeli Hebrew and it translates into English as datit, as in religious. Okay, but I'm, I'm not sure that translates back into, uh, into Fatim in Egypt. Uh, I'm not translating it yet back into Egypt, but that's a good point. You're right. Uh, the word dat is not necessarily the way that it's used today. Correct. And their whole purpose was to reach a place of nivuah, to restore prophecy. They were attempting to bring back, uh, or bring back or come forth to an era which was about a prophetic Judaism or a prophetic religious experience. Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rabbam often in his works talks about a pgiya elohit, a divine encounter, as some kind of goal. When a person observes Shabbat, that's one thing, but how many of us observe Shabbat while reaching a pgiya elohit, a divine encounter, an encounter with something that is greater than just how many cups of hot water can I put my tea bag into. And Hasidim Mitzrayim really ended up being led by some five generations of the Rambam's descendants after him. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to those who are familiar with this time period in Jewish history as well as the literature that comes out from there, that Hasidim Mitzrayim were very closely connected to another group of uh, Muslims who were known as Sufis. Uh, the Sufis are some mystical group of Islam and they have many customs and practices that were shared between these two communities which we'll talk about in just a moment. What happens to Hasidim Mitzrayim is like any new Jewish group on the scene, is they meet opposition. People don't love the fact that they're doing things differently than the way they've been done before. And a group of these Hasidim were coming under attack from the local Jewish establishment reaches out to the son of the Rambam, Rabbeinu Avraham, who was at that time the Nagid in Egypt. Anyone knows what a Nagid is? What's a Nagid? But you're, you're right, it's actually very closely connected to the Rej Galuta, meaning the Jewish 
uh, leadership in exile, it devolved. It, it came down in, in layers, but whereas we once had a king, and then we had a nasi, and after the nasi, we had a resh galuta, the, what do they call him in English? An exilarch. He was the, the head of the galut in Bavel. And then you find in other Jewish communities, especially in Egypt, you have a nagid. The nagid essentially is the leader, I don't know if a ruler is the right word, but a leader of the Jewish community, especially when it comes to interacting with a non-Jewish government. He took care of the Jewish community, but also uh, held up Jewish rights, if we could use that term, in exile in the place of Egypt. So Rabbeinu Abraham was a very influential person, not just as a Tamil Chacham, but also as a, a Jewish community leader. And they reach out to Rabbeinu Abraham, hoping to get some kind of protection for the persecution that they're feeling in the Jewish community. And it helps that they have an inn in the household of Rabbeinu Abraham ben Rambam, because as it says here, the Hasidim reach out to the son of the Rambam. It's bold in the bottom of page one. Rabbi Avraham, Shechamiv, that his father-in-law, Rabbi Chananel HaChasid, who was known as Rabbi Chananel the Pious, Hayam He was from this camp of Hasidim Mitzrayim. V'hitzlichu la'ashpi'alav l'tztaref al-shurotahim, and they managed to convince Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam to join their ranks, and ultimately. Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam begins defending them whether on a political level or on a halachic level, showing that the things that they do don't necessarily deviate from Jewish tradition. And this whole uh, concept of Chassidei Mitzrayim and the history of Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam with Chassidei Mitzrayim, there's an article, two-piece article, written by uh, Professor Dov Mimun. If you'd like, it's in Hebrew, I can post it to the Google Classroom after the shiul, in which he really spends a lot of time and, and with many, many sources and, and footnotes discussing this, this whole period of Chassidim Mitzrayim from Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam accepting leadership to where it fizzles out, and we'll talk about why they fizzle out in just a moment. Their practices involve, look on page two, a number of very interesting ideas. So on the top of page two, they bow down and prostrate a lot during tefillah. This is something that Rabbeinu Abraham advocated in general for the Jewish community. Part of our tefillah is to prostrate ourselves on the ground. Why did we stop prostrating ourselves on the ground? Presumably, anyone know? We went, went, well, let me ask you this question. Well, a little earlier than that, perhaps. Uh, but yes, a non-Jewish influence more. So essentially what happens is that we see that the nations around us are bowing down on the ground and it becomes a not-so-Jewish thing to do. Kind of like uh, throwing rice at a wedding, which is an old Jewish custom. Why do we throw rice at a wedding? What's the purpose? Seeds. Oh, they're very good. They're, in Yemen, for example, there was a minhag to throw nuts at people at the chupa. Why? What does it symbolize? Very good. The next means vav pruvu. So this is a classic Jewish guilt of you thought you were going to make your parents happy just by getting married, and it didn't help because now you got married. They want you to have kids. And you think when you have kids, it's going to be okay? They always want you to have more kids. And so this is part of the Jewish simantov. It's a sign that's being thrown at the couple of uh, why rice and nuts, aside from that they're seeds, and yes, they, they can be fruitful and multiply. There's something else, halachically, about throwing food. 
Are you allowed to throw food? Not unless the food doesn't get harmed in the process of it being thrown. So if you were to throw bread or know, something else, and you know, it falls on the floor, nobody's going to eat it anymore. Rice, beans, uh, nuts, they're things that you could throw them, you wash them off afterwards, and then you use them. It doesn't involve a prohibition of bal of wasting. And because of that, this was a minhag in the Jewish community. Uh, until uh, Eleanor Rigby comes along and picks up a rice in a church where a wedding has been, and nobody else throws rice anymore in the Jewish community because it's not a Jewish thing anymore. To the few of you who, who appreciated the value of that piyut, I'm happy. Somewhere it rains a lot. What? Somewhere it rains a lot, you're not going to throw rice. That's right, correct. You're, you're absolutely right. So kriyot vishtachavayot, a prostration in tefillah, is something that happens, but slowly fizzles out in the Jewish community, and then you hear things like, you can't bow down outside of the Bet Mikdash. But you look in the Jewish community, and especially if you're in an Ashkenazi Jewish community, but also Sevaradim in many places, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippurim, there's prostrating on the floor a few times. So why is it permitted over there? What do we do over there that permits us to prostrate on the floor? What do you... What, anyone does it here? We just have to cover, we just have to cover the stone. Very good. You, you cover the floor with your handy-dandy carpet that you keep over your shoulder, and you roll it on the floor, and you prostrate yourself on it. Which reminds some Jews of something that doesn't sound so Jewish at all. But when you see our cousins in the Muslim community who have carpets and they bow down on those carpets, where do you think that comes from? That's a Jewish minhag. And Rabbeinu Avraham Rambam spends part of his writings trying to convince Jews to begin prostrating on the floor again. In fact, Moriah Rav Peretz, when he prays alone, not in a Beda Knesset, he doesn't want to get arrested or anything else might happen, when he prays alone, he prostrates on the floor. Amin Astam, if you were not afraid, and you had the ability to not bow on the stone floor, which is a, a, a chachamim decreed you cannot bow on, then it would be very righteous and very wise to return back to an original Jewish minhag of prostrating on the floor when you bow down to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Or else how do you explain the words that you say in tefillah? Anachru korim, umishtachavim, umodim. But we don't do any of those things. Maybe maybe the modim part, maybe we bow. But how much of that do we do? Now, Sefaradim would jump at me and say, hey, but we've already edited the Nasakh, so now we don't have those words in it. I know, so you edited something out because you don't do something in reality, but that's not the proper way to go about one's Judaism. Washing hands and feet before tefillah was something Chassidim Yitzrayim did. Uh, crying at different points during tefillah, standing in rows, if you've ever seen a Sufi dancing or anything that looks like this, and there's all kinds of meditations that are done. Some even say that they were meditating on names of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rabbam did the best that he could to justify these things in Halakha with one last part that made his life even more difficult, and that was the interest of these groups of Hasidim to get involved in something that we call sagfanut, or or affliction, or um, there's a better word, abstinence, abstaining from things. And in fact, in the book, the book, I'm going to speak of the Hashem, Rabbeinu Abraham ben Rambam discusses his whole perik on abstinence, and it's a very severe perik, but he says it's not for everyone, it's only for Hasidim, and he develops a whole approach around where abstinence fits in the Jewish community in the first place. Ultimately, this movement is led by a few people. Rabbi Avraham Chasid, who Rabbeinu Avraham calls my, my master and my teacher. Rabbeinu Avraham takes over. 
a few more generations of Rabbeinu Abraham's descendants take over, and then ultimately it fizzles out for a few reasons, and the first being opposition that didn't go away in the Jewish community. The second, uh, some legends that involve uh, the leaders either being killed or taken captive, and therefore the, the people being left without leadership. And last but not least, you have the rise of Kabbalah, which comes from Tzfat, from Israel, and fills in this void of those who were looking to be uh, spiritual of sorts, they quickly found themselves overcome with this new Kabbalah that comes to them from Israel and essentially takes over their, their whole community and their system, and the rest is literally history that I'm sure you're familiar with on your own. With that background, I wish to open up a piece of Obeinu Abraham bin Abraham. Until now, any questions on what we've discussed so far? Sure. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask if the which prayers were said while um, prostrating because I can only think of one during your keeper service. But um, like which which like any prayer like can you say the helium on like prostrating on the floor or how does it work? That's a very good question. So that's uh, that's a beautiful question. When it comes to kriya uh, which we prostrate, so you probably recall on Yom Kippur that it's in the Alenu Shabach prayer. And there the words are, V'anachnu korim, u'mishtachavim, u'modim. And there are steps, korim, mishtachavim, and then modim. Or uh, in the repetition of Yom HaKippurim, when we talk about the Kohen Gadol, V'ha'am, v'ha'konim, ha'omedim ba'azara, that they come and, and they, they bow down, and they say, Ba'uch shayim kol machudon ha'ved. So similar to that is really any time we recite a Kadosh Bechu's name in certain places in the Amidah. That's mostly where you find the bowing down and the prostration happening. So in the silent Amidah, uh, where you do this little bow, originally there used to be a prostration on the floor. So much so that the Talmud records that Rabbi Akiva would get so into his prostration that you would find him starting the Amidah on one side of the room, and by the time he finished his Amidah, he was on the other side of the room. Many may be familiar with this piece of Talmud, and it only makes sense if you recognize that Rabbi Akiva used to get down on the floor, and then stand up again, and get down on the floor, and then stand up again, in which point he wasn't in the same place where he started after all of that. Yes. Is the custom of Yemenites come from like like an, like um, the the closeness with Arabs, or does it come from uh, Rabbi Abraham ben Rambam? Which custom of the Yemenites are you referring to? Uh, praying on the floor. So it's interesting. I'm, I come from a Yemenite family, and I never saw anybody in my father's family praying on the floor. Are you familiar with the Yemenites who pray on the floor? Apparently, back in Yemen, they used to pray on the floor, and they stopped when they moved. Do you mean like sitting on the floor or, or bowing on the floor? Yeah, oh, that's because that's a good. I saw this beautiful. Um, you know, they have these these uh, magazines about homes, and it says beautiful Arabic home in, in some. I don't remember where it was, which country it was in, and you see it's, it's like a palace on the outside, and you open up the door, and there's this beautiful room, carpets, a huge TV, and no furniture, and I said, "What? Well, it's a very strange room." They finished. They didn't finish building it, and then you see that everyone's comes into the room and they sit all around the floor because that's the way that you sit. What do you need a couch for when you have a floor? Uh, I'm not sure that that's actually a minhag to pray on the floor, uh, but rather that's the way that people just sat. They sat on the floor and, and their whole life. So why not doing it in the Bed Knesset also? This actually reminds me of a conversation I once had with someone Hasidic, most likely from my wife's family, but I don't recall who it was. And they were talking about the importance of continuing 
the dress that Daniel was really into last week. And uh, the importance of, you know, what does it mean when a young bar mitzvah kid says he doesn't want to wear a long coat in, in uh, you know, summer weather in August. And we were having this conversation that, you know, taking it off means shedding years of tradition. We have to dress the way that our grandparents dress. They had a whole speech about that. I said, you know, my grandfather was born and lived in a place called Taiz in Yemen. And when I asked my grandfather, you know, how did he dress in Yemen? Because you have some cool Yemenite rabbis with some nice striped robes and headgear. And I wanted to, maybe we dress like that. Let's go back to our original customs. And he told me how they dressed. And essentially it was a combination of, they had a, a, a big sheet that they wrapped around their body and a talit that they wore the whole day. Not a tzitzit, a talit they wore the whole day. And that was what they wore for clothes. I said, Saba, what about pants? And we didn't have pants. Underwear, we didn't have underwear. So I'm thinking to myself, imagine if I would tell you that it's the minhag of my family that nobody in my family is allowed to wear underwear. Nobody can wear pants. From now on, everybody has to walk around with a, a bed sheet on their... Imagine if I told you such an absurd thing. And then if my son decided that he wanted to, to put on shorts, uh, no, you can't do that. It's, it's inappropriate. You're rejecting years of our family's tradition. Sometimes when we use the word tradition, we have to understand what is really a tradition and what is not. And that's actually a very good point. Hugo, you brought it up. It's, it's important to know that uh, not everything that we did necessarily we did out of tradition. Sometimes it was just because of the world around us. So I think your first guess is correct and not the one that it sourced in the Rabbi Nova Ben Abba. So that's my feeling. So B'zad Hashem, we're on page three in our source sheet. And really page three is all I came to learn with you today. So all the other sources that are attached to page three, so if you look on page four and five, and there are additional sources that complement page three, if we get to them, we'll get to them, and if we don't, we won't. But Bezat Hashem, we have the time together, and let's learn Torah together. A question that we face often in the Jewish community is one of, I want to do more, I want to do extra. Or we see people that do more, and they do extra. And I'm using these words because I'm not certain that you really can do more or extra at this point in our learning. And then you find that the people who do more and do extra now judge you for not doing as much as they do. This is a normal occurrence in which I didn't do something yesterday, now I do it, and now I look bad at you for not doing it the way I do it. Today in the morning I got a phone call from a dear friend of mine. He's a, a kashrut supervisor in a certain institution. And someone called him up, and she asked him what type of shechita, is it a, uh, I don't want to, you probably can understand, for, what kind of shechita is it or not? Oh, this, it's not that? Is it Chalav Yisrael? Not Chalav Yisrael? There's nothing I'm going to be able to eat over there? I'm thinking about this person. And she started giving him attitude about the kashrut of the place. And I know the person who's calling. I know the person who's answering the phone. One of them, not so long ago, didn't eat kosher in the first place. Now, it would be an avera for me to bring that up with her. But I'm bringing it up with you. And now she's calling somebody who's a rabbi, who's the son of somebody who's a tamichacham, who's the grandson of a tamichacham, who's the great-grandson of tamichacham, who all kept kosher for thousands of years. And she is busy telling him that his kashrut is not good enough for her. So I'm jumping to do more and extra, but a basis I don't have. And sometimes we find ourselves, as we're striving to grow, we get attracted to this attitude of maybe we'll do more. Maybe there's another chumrah we can take on. We see that all the cool kids are doing something we want to do with them also. Or we're motivated into doing more or feeling bad about what it is that we don't do because the people around us have a certain standard or a certain pressure. One of the first years in my home in San Diego with my wife, 
we had guests that came they started asking all kinds of questions about this is before I had a forum this is before anybody knew about me and Kashrut in the first place they just came to my home and started asking questions about the chicken about the sink about how we check the raspberries whatever questions came up and at a certain point I told them listen I'm hosting you in my house you're not paying me for dinner uh, I don't owe you anything and if you don't want to eat my food you don't have to but don't come to my home and start asking questions as if you're, you're in some not kosher restaurant trying to figure out what you can eat or not. It's inappropriate. And I remember there are a few people at the table who, you know, it's normal already in today's world to walk into your home and interrogate you in your home. That's a normal thing. So when someone pushes back on that, you give me the look that some of you just gave me. But you have to say what you need to say. And Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam in today's shiur and next week's shiur is going to give us what we need to know to be able to deal with this kind of reality that we face in the Jewish community. I want to read. Interrupt me at any point. Derech HaTorah The way of the Torah Hamit Mashechet I'm on page 3 at the top right. Hamit Mashechet veholechet bligvun lahashlamat matrot HaTorah The way of the Torah which extends endlessly in the fulfillment of the goals of the Torah. I mean, the way which brings us to fulfilling the words of the Torah, is divided into two categories. You know, these Shtedrachim, it seems to be, is also one of the fundamentals of the Hasidim Mitzrayim's belief, but I'm familiar with it because of Rabbi Rabbam himself. The way of the, the masses and the way of the individual. Or as we're going to translate it, there is a common road and an intimate road. There's a common path in observance. And there's an intimate path in observance. And those two are not the same. And before we get very carried away and say, well, I want to be on the special road. It's not not special to not be on the intimate path. There are steps, though, that one has to take to reach these levels, and let me explain together. Derham, what do we mean when we say the common road? Hikiyum ha-mitzvot ha-meforashot is the fulfillment of the explicit mitzvot in the Torah. Asiyat mitzvot aseh vihimaneut milot aseh fulfilling all of the obligatory mitzvot and refraining from all of the things which HaKadosh Baruch Hu explicitly commanded us to refrain from. Every Jewish person is obligated to observe the mitzvot and to stay away from things which would violate any of the mitzvot lotase. They say negative commandments, it's not a proper uh, observance of the, the active commandments and refraining from the uh, passive commandments. Mitzvot milah, so having a brit milah, sukkah, lulav, lumashal, all of these mitzvot, these are obligatory for males, but not for females. The mitzvot for the kohanim are relevant only to those who are kohanim and are not relevant to any of the other Jewish people. And then you have certain mitzvot which may be explicitly mentioned. They're obligatory on all of us, but now that we don't have a bit of mikdash, we're not obligated in them. We simply cannot fulfill them. You find something similar in the mitzvot that are lotase. Lemashal, for example, Ma'amaroi Tale, what the Shakalukh says, Lotisa Pnedal, Vlod Hedar Pnegadon, Enochal Aratzibur, Aradainim Bilvad. 
do not favor a poor man or honor a prominent one in the book of Aika, this halakha really only applies to a dayan who's sitting on a bedin. If you're a regular person, you may learn value from this, meaning I shouldn't show favoritism to people. But if you were to show favoritism to someone in this context alone, you wouldn't be violating this specific mitzvah aseh, or mitzvah lot aseh actually, because you're not a dayan, and you're not corrupting judgment because of your favoritism. So you find that there are explicit mitzvot, which are relevant to different people in different times. This is part of what we call the common road. Mitzvot that everybody in the Jewish people are obligated to follow. You follow me so far? The truth of this path, It's not enough just to observe. We have this brainless, mindless observance that exists in the Jewish community. I do things, but I don't know why I'm doing them. I was just told, or I was just taught, or I was raised to do X, Y, or Z. Why do I do them? I don't know. What's the purpose for doing them? I'm not sure. What's the source for this mitzvah? I have no idea. Rabbeinu Abam, Ben Rambam tells us, don't think that observance of the common road is so simple. In order to be on the common path in the first place, you have to know what you're doing. A person must gauge, they must examine how these halachot apply to themselves or not, and determine what you have to keep and what you don't have to keep. And if you don't know what you're obligated in, a person will not succeed at all. And this is what our rabbis meant when they say in Masechet Avot, en bur yerechet, that an ignoramus cannot fear sin. I mean, you cannot even begin to approach the common road if you're an ignoramus. In the Jewish world that we live in, and especially the, the current Jewish world, which has been influenced tremendously by uh, Hasidut and, and certain other uh, beliefs, you have this really soft place in one's heart for the ignoramus who doesn't know anything and how you should love him, and the simple avodat Hashem, and it's so special. But really, in the Ben Midrash of Rabbeinu Abraham, an ignoramus cannot possibly approach observance in the first place. How can you approach HaKadosh Baruch Hu out of ignorance? How can you observe halakha if you don't know what halakha is in the first place? And this is not intended to be harsh on those who don't know, but it's intended to require us, if you want to consider yourself observant, it's not enough to observe. You have to know. There's a yeda, there's a certain amount of knowledge that you have to have. How often do people say, well, how can you say this about halakha? How can you say that? And then you engage them in conversation and you realize they have no idea what they're talking about. If you have no idea what you're talking about, so why are you bringing up this conversation? Imagine going to a medical doctor. I'm sure people do this all the time, by the way. I'm sure that anybody here in the medical profession has actually experienced this before. Going to a doctor and the doctor says, listen, this is what you have to do to take care of your health. Say, who, who do you think you are? How can you say such a thing? And the doctor looks at you and says, well, you came to me for advice, or I'm the one who went to medical school, what did you study? At best, you're going to get, well, I saw it on Google, you know, I checked it out on, on some blog somewhere. And the question you have to ask yourself, are you truly licensed to speak about the things you're speaking about? Now, when it comes to your own personal observance, in order to consider yourself observant, you have to be knowledgeable of halakha. En bu yerechet. Chachamim tell us that if we're ignoramuses, then you just can't be uh, a in the first place. By the way, it's not fair to blame 
chasidut entirely for this bringing up of, of a generation of simple Jews. Because there were early Hasidic masters, for example, who were very much against this belief in the first place. One of the most prominent among them was none other than Rabbi Nachman of Breslev, who I'm not a Hasid of, but whose works I have studied. Rabbi Nachman of Breslev has a number of instances where people come to him so excited about this simple Jew they just met. Uh, I recall a few instances. One of them, uh, one of his students came and said, you know there's this guy in the Bera Knesset, he's so simple. When he reads Tehillim, he gets to the chapter Laman Aleph and he thinks that it says law. So he reads the word law and he gets to chapter Laman Bet and he reads the word lev, it's a heart. He said, Isn't it amazing how simple of a Jew he is? Rebbe said, why would a person be so proud of someone who doesn't know how to read Hebrew properly? Lo am ha'aretz chasid. You can't be righteous if you're an am ha'aretz. There was a group of Hasidim in Rabbi Nachman's lifetime that used to keep a bottle of vodka under their pillow. And they were known for when they would wake up and they would ask each other in a drunken stupor, Is Mashiach here yet? Is Mashiach, in the, Mashiach not here? They would take out their bottle, they would chug the bottle till they uh, passed out again, and they would wake up again. Is Mashiach here? Is Mashiach here? And when they came to ask Rabbi Nachman abreast of about this, he said, you know, it would be better for these people that after they are hungover and they get over their, their drunkenness, to wake up and finally commit themselves to some kind of Avodat Hashem to make sure the Mashiach is here. But what kind of Judaism is this? So the first step of the common road is knowledge. You have to know what you do. You have to know what you believe. So if you know this road, you can now begin to walk on the straight road that the Kadosh Baruch Hu has given before us. And somebody who walks on the common road in the observance of mitzvot, Nikra Tzadik, is referred to as a Tzadik. You have to get rid here of any possible Kabbalistic influences as the definition of Tzadik. The definition of Tzadik in the Rambam's writing, and we know how the Rambam defines a Tzadik. The Rambam defines a Tzadik Tell me. More mitzvot than, uh, than Very good. That's the, that's the Rambam says some, every person is split up between mitzvot and averot. There's nobody who doesn't have averot. So a tzaddik is somebody who has more mitzvot than they have averot. And what is a rasha, therefore? Someone who has more averot than mitzvot. Very good. Somebody has more averot than mitzvot. And therefore a benoni, this concept of somebody who's kind of stuck in limbo, is a person who's at a 50-50 place. And they are unsure of where they fall out on this, am I a tzaddik, am I a rasha? The Rabbeinu Abraham is giving this definition of tzaddik. Somebody who follows the path, the common road completely, nika tzaddik, it's called righteous. Vetam, and uh, a good word for tam. Innocent, maybe. Viyashar, and straightforward. Vesar mera, and one who strays from evil. Uvelshon chachamim, and our chachamim refer to this person as a kasher, a kosher person. The term kasher really doesn't apply just to food. In fact, it's not usually used in uh, the writing of Chachamim to apply it to food. That's normally referred to as hetel, things that are permitted or asur. A kasher is a person who is a, a complete person, a person who is following the common road completely. The proper word to use for such a person is a tzaddik. Because it comes from the word tzedek of righteousness, which means to do what is just and fulfill one's obligations. 
כי קיום המצוות החיוביות הוא חוב שאנו חבים לו יתעלה כחובת העבד למלא מצוות רבו, כמו שנאמר, כי לי בני ישראל עבדים, ועוד נאמר, וזכרת כי עבד היית במצרים ושמרת ועשית את החוקים האלה. We have obligations, our obligations towards הקדוש ברוך הוא. המספיק לעובדי השם, this book is titled, the, they say in English, the guide to serving God, but really, what is sufficient for a servant of God to do? You know, in many communities, especially in the Sephardic community, uh, we sign our name with two letters before our name. Uh, anyone know what those letters are? Samech. Uh, that's in the end of the name, you find many Chachamim, but by the way, not just Sephardic Chachamim sign their name Samech Tet, The, concept, the thought that Samech Tet stands for uh, Sephardi Tahor has been debunked many, many times because Chachamim that were not Sephardim use this title to sign their name as well. Where, what, what, say? Nun Ayn. What does Nun Ayn stand for? That's... I have no idea. I just, if I was a kid, I, could, I thought I remember something like that. Oh, you're right. By the way, so Nun Ayn. Very good. Jordan's right. In the... In many communities, they write that after someone's name, who passed away. In the beginning of a name, you'll find the acronym Ayn Hey. Ayn, apostrophe Hey. Look in, for example, in the, the books of the Batedin in um, Miknes or Marrakesh, or you'll see that all the Chamim sign their name, Ayn Hey, and then something else. Ayn Hey stands for Eved Hashem. I'm a servant of HaKadosh Baruch That's my title. You don't sign my name Rabbi, I don't sign my name Chacham. You say Eved Hashem. Like every other Jew in the world, we're servants of the Creator. That's a title that we're proud of. We're not embarrassed of being servants of the creator of the world. Ironic, really. You know what the Pope calls himself? No. He calls himself the servant of the servants. Although, so I guess he works for us. <laughs> but, but you have to be careful with Ein Hei. Actually, it's, it's almost possible, and I would need to check it and check this out, whether there is some way, there is, there is some, uh, that there's a comment going on there. You know, much the same way that they, uh, we, we call God Melech Malachim Lachim, right? King over the king of kings. This is because the kings of Persia used to call themselves the king of kings. They said, oh yeah, the king of kings? Well, guess who's the king over the king? Daniel, you're very, I'll tell you the truth is I always get frustrated. My Sidur that I use here in the Berkneset is one of the few Sidurim that translates Melech Malachim Lachim as the king over king of kings. Normally they just say the king of kings, but that's not the accurate translation of this term. Look, we can nitpick translations together, Daniel. We'll make a good friends. B'zad Hashem. So, <clears throat> you have to just be careful where you use the, the words Ayn Hei. It's happened to me before that I wrote Ayn Hei and they asked me if this person passed away. Because in today's Judaism, they use Ayn Hei to mean Allah Shalom. You know, peace be upon him. So you just have to be careful that you put it in the front of the word and not, God forbid, on the other side of the word. You don't want to give anybody the wrong idea. And therefore, if this is what makes a tzaddik, Rabbeinu Abraham says the opposite, ומי שמקל ראש בחוקות אלו, נקרא רשע ופושע ורע ומרע, and all kinds of wonderful names, he's called evil and unjust and a, a, a criminal, a evil, harmful, all kinds of words. כינויים שאין צורך לחוקרם ולבערם, says Rabbeinu Abraham, you don't have to go look up these words, but somebody who deviates from the mitzvot of HaKadosh Baruch Hu deserves these titles. I'm going to put a note here. I have a series online called Pagans Among Us. Chaz v'shalom. I'm not referring to anybody who's living in our generation, who's trying hard to be part of the Jewish community and, and simply not up to where anyone else's standards may be in terms of observance. Anyone who knows me knows that to be true. Rather, he's referring here to a willful violator of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Torah. Someone who knows HaKadosh Baruch Hu, someone who knows Torah mitzvot, and willfully decides to rebel against HaKadosh Baruch Hu. 
וכל שם מן השמות הללו יחול על האדם לפי כובד עוונו וזדונו, and these titles will rest on a person depending on how badly they're violating, how severely they're violating the common road. קלות ראשו או חוסר אמונתו. אך הנכון שקרא רשע. The proper word to use though is רשע. כי עוול הוא עושה, באשר איננו ממלא את חובותיו לרבו, ואיננו מספק לנפשו השכלית את הראוי לה לפי שלמותה. This is a beautiful sentence. This person who is a rasha is guilty not just of not living up to their obligations to their master, to their creator, to their owner, but they're guilty. I want to read it to you. I have English here in front of me. Such a person acts unjustly by not providing the rational part of his soul with all it needs to become complete. I don't like this translation, rational. But a person who has averot, who violates HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Torah, doesn't just harm their relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but ends up harming themselves too. Ends up harming their neshama that is inside of them, that deserves a proper level of observance. And if I may take you then to source 2, on page 4, we're going to jump there for just a moment. This idea is found in the Rambam's Moen Vuchim. The Rambam writes about the word tzedakah and what the word tzedakah means. So I'm in source 2 on page 4. And he says that a person who does what they need to do is not giving tzedakah. If you go to the grocery store and you pay your bill, you're not giving the person any tzedakah, you're paying what you need. That's called milui chov. You're fulfilling your obligation. Tzedakah means it's a level of righteousness. You're doing something you don't necessarily have to do. And I'll read in bold. אבל החוקים הרואים עליך לזולתך מפני מעלת המידות כרפואת מחץ כל מלכות שיקרא צדקה. ומפני זה אמר בהשבת המשכון ולך תהיה צדקה. When you return the משכון, the, the uh, collateral that you have, and you're returning it, that's referred to as a צדקה. כי כשתלך בדרך מעלות המידות כבר עשית צדק לנפשך המשכלת כי שילמת לחוקה. When we walk in the way of virtue, we act righteously towards our intellectual faculty and pay what is due unto it. And because of that, HaKadosh Baruch Hu refers to this virtuous thing as tzedakah. It's not only because what you're doing to another person, but it's because of what you're receiving in your neshama also. You're doing something good, which pushes back on you and gives you this ma'ala, this character trait of being a tzaddik. And therefore, unfortunately, a person who doesn't know that and they're involved in things which are, are resha, which are evil, not only are they hurting their relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but ultimately they're also lacking something inside of them. So we're the top left of page 3, and this is really what I came to focus in today, because the common road I'm sure you're familiar with. Asher l'derech hayachid, when it comes to regular people, the intimate road is a way of life attuned to the objectives and secrets or underlying reasons. I don't necessarily have to translate sod as a secret of the mitzvot. The implicit goals of the Torah and the ways of the prophets, the pious, and those like them. So there's another understanding of Torah mitzvot. It's not only a matter of doing more 
But here you're growing in quality. So once you fulfilled all the 613 mitzvot, or those of the 613 mitzvot that you fulfilled properly, so you can call yourself a tzaddik, you are now allowed to venture onto the next path, which is called the path, the intimate road. It's the path of the chassidim, the path of the tzaddikim, which is understanding the underlying messages of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Torah. And someone who goes on this path is not just a tzaddik, is not just righteous or kasher, a kosher person, but they're called a chasid, a pious person. Chesed means benevolence and being generous. I'm doing something which HaKadosh Baruch did not explicitly require from me in the Torah. Don't get scared. I'm not here to scare you. I'm here to share with you an understanding of the word Chesed. This is an I already explained to you in the previous chapters of this book all of the mitzvot and their underlying reasons, the real understanding of the mitzvot as I have seen them. And we don't have any of those commentaries. We've lost them, history has lost them. They're not in front of us. We've, we've not managed to find them in any archives, in any stolen archives either, where people stole Jewish writings or manuscripts. And it's our loss that so much of what Rabbi Abraham could have shed light on for us in Judaism is gone today. Now some say, I read an article from a researcher who claims that Rabbi Abraham ben Arabam's book was three or four times longer than his father's Moren Nebuchim. Which means that not only would it have elaborated uh, now it would have explained, perhaps for us, many ideas found in the Moran Nebuchim properly. It would have also applied many of the Rambam's great ideas into the reality of the mitzvot that we desperately need, especially in a world like ours today. I want to look at source 4 and source 6 with you, if we can, on page uh, 5. Yes? Um, is it not kind of dangerous to have these additional um, practices in the sense that it's kind of divisive because the way the human beings are you were saying before that when you take something on you kind of look down your nose at everyone else that's not doing it and that's kind of a bit like the situation that we have today with certain groups maybe see and that's why you're in the shul because it's exactly why I'm bringing this up in the first place because in order to understand what it is that we're dealing with today we have to find its place in Judaism in the first place and so you're right there definitely is a danger in Hasidut and many of those who are involved, this is, by the way, when he's talking about Hasid, he's not defining now the Hasidim in Egypt. He's referring to the Hasidim in the eyes of our sages. I mean, this is a concept that exists in Judaism. And there most definitely are limitations, not just on what you're allowed to do, or not allowed to do, but as we're going to see next week, who is even allowed to involve themselves in Hasidut? And how many of the people who do things today that they believe are above and beyond the letter of the law, how many of them have permission to do what they're doing anyways? I mean, who allows you to be strict about something in kashrut, for example? It's a hot topic here. When you still speak Lashon Hara. How you're Arasha on the common road. What right do you have to be pious on the intimate road before you've managed to complete the common road, which all of us are obligated in? And that's precisely why the Shi'ur is called Judaism is not a democracy. 
Because unlike other places where you have the right to pick and choose what you want to do and how much you want to do in one thing and how little in another thing, in Judaism you don't have the right to venture out onto a road like the intimate road if you're still wrinkling your nose at people or looking down at people or judging people. Which refers to this as uh, Range Rover Judaism. <laughs> That's very good. Range Rover Judaism. I like that term. Does she have a copyright on it? Sorry? Does she have a copyright on that? I'd like to use it. <laughs> yeah, but the, uh, the, the thing it makes me think of is every time I hear a rabbi go, you know, the you know, the is like this, and, uh, but the guy does something more at the world out there. You know, it's like, why don't you push it a bit more? You know, do we not have enough to do? Well, this term of Tavolan Belcha is a very interesting one. The law is this, but it would be really great if you did more or you didn't do that, which essentially suggests that you're replacing the law in the first place. By, by thinking that you're better than the law, so now the law is not really law. I mean, imagine you're on the highway, a freeway, I don't know what the, we call it now in this American-British dynamic. Uh, you're, you're driving with your car and it says X amount of uh, uh, kilometers per hour. And now you're doing half of that. Why? You want to be extra strict. They're going to pull you over for that also because deviation from the law is deviation, no matter if you're speeding or you're going slower. And this mentality that we have, which is it's better to avoid what halakha allows you to do in the first place, is a dangerous one. Which is why Rabbeinu Abraham ben Rabbam has to explain that there are two paths in Judaism and how they work very clearly. So let's jump into, on source 4, the Rambam's Mishneh Torah where he mentions in two different places this concept of digging deeper inside of a halakha and trying to find not necessarily another rule, so not stringency that you may think. It's not a stringency in the sense of, can I do more can I, or, or prohibit myself from doing certain things, but understanding a mitzvah deeper. So when we're saying doing more, most of the time Rabbi Muhammad is referring to doing more on a quality level, not on a quantitative level. And we'll see here in the Rambam. The Rambam is talking about Timura, which I don't really wish to get into right now. And the Rambam writes in the top of page 5 on the left, Even though all of the mitzvot in the Torah are decrees. What does a decree mean? There's no... HaKadosh Baruch didn't share his logic with us. Like we explained in Laws of Mi'ilah. I think I skipped the source. Did I skip the source for you? Source 3. Look in the laws of Mila, source 3. The Rambam starts there. A person should consider the laws of Torah and to penetrate into their ultimate significance so much as he can. You can learn from a mitzvah like what we did earlier. There's a law for Dayanim. HaKadosh Baruch commands the Dayanim to be just. It is possible that a person can walk away from this saying, maybe in my personal life, I should also be just towards people. And not, is it a halakha? Not a halakha. I'm learning a greater message from this halakha. And like we're going to find now in the source, we began reading mistakenly in source 4. Even though all of the statutes of the Torah, HaKadosh Baruch didn't share their logic with us, their gezerot, nonetheless, Says the Rambam, it's proper to meditate, to ponder the mitzvot, and whatever you can come up with a logical reason for, give a reason for. 
The word in Hebrew for reason actually is, you know what, it's not time. The word in Hebrew often is siba. Siba could also be a cause. The cause for this mitzvah. Rambam is not suggesting that you find the reason for the mitzvah. As much as a tam, a tam is a taste. All the people here, if we would go out to a restaurant together, we would order different food. Because we have different tastes. And that's what gives a mitzvah its significance. You're able to find in a mitzvah, a tam, a taste, that someone else might not find that's the reason they do that mitzvah. And therefore when that reason goes away, the mitzvah doesn't go away because that's not the divine reason for the mitzvah, but it's meaning that you have found in the mitzvah. And the Rambam continues in the next bold section, Whenever you look at mitzvot, you should say, these are things that are meant to suppress my evil inclinations and make me a better person. Most of the mitzvot in the Torah, says the Rambam, most of the mitzvot in the Torah are intended to make us into better, more quality people. And the Rambam speaks a lot about this in Moray Nebuchim, where the Rambam essentially gives reasons for why certain mitzvot are mentioned in the Torah. They pretty much run along the themes of things that HaKadosh Baruch Hu prohibited to us because they're similar to pagan practices or other uh, nations' practices, and then things that we're supposed to do because they're intended to fix our character, to make us into better people, to make society a better place. And it's actually a fascinating thing to go through the Chumash and the mitzvot and the chumash with the Rambam's explanations in the Moren uh, There actually, there's even a book today in English that someone translated from Hebrew, which is called maybe Moren Nevuchim on the Torah. You can find it, Mosad Rav Kuk prints it. And it's a fascinating work, just insights, insights into why there are certain mitzvot. The Rambam, for example, if I can bring this up, the Rambam talks about the prohibition against prostitution in Halakha. And whereas many people might think that the root of prostitution is because of sexual corruption, the Rambam doesn't only see that. Oh, very good. Uh, you have it right there. Wonderful. Is that on the Torah? Is that the one that goes on the Chumash? Oh, he's right. Very good. So this is a very important work. And it's, it's not the same as reading the Mishnah Torah properly, but it will definitely accompany you as you read through the Mitzvot on Torah. The Rambam explains that whenever you find prostitution, you find that there are people who are more powerful, normally in a family, normally the male population that takes advantage of a female population. And this causes tremendous corruption, evil against women, evil against the people's children, people selling their children. The Imam says, not just is it here to stop sexual deviance, there's enough mitzvot in the Torah to talk about that. But it's meant here to protect people who normally would be used or abused by other people from being used and abused by them. And it's a, it's a proper thing, says the Rambam. And now Rabbeinu Abraham and Rambam. That when you go through your Jewish observance to stop and to think about things and to say, every mitzvah that I do has to have something more than just I'm shaking a palm tree branch. What else am I doing? Why am I really doing this? This path of pondering mitzvot more than just what is explicitly mentioned is the path of Hasidim. I really want to do a, a Ramchal with you. Let me do this. I want to read the rest of the Rabbeinu Muhammad Rambam and we'll see what I have time for, if I have time for anything else after that. Ibn Omar, and I'll say back to page 3 in the left column. 
ונאמר הנעשה כי מי שאוכל מצה ונמנע מלאכול חמץ בחג המצות ויושב בסוכה ונוטה לולב בחג הסוכות The person who eats matzah and does not eat chametz on Pesach and who sits in the sukkah and takes a lulav on sukkot והנמנה מעשיית מלאכה בשבת ויום הכיפורים ומלאכילה ושתייה ביום הכיפורים ומעשיית המלאכת עבודה ביום טוב and somebody who doesn't violate Shabbat and somebody who fasts on יום הכיפורים and somebody who doesn't do forbidden labors on יום טוב והלובש ציצית and one who wears ציצית ומניח תפילין and puts on תפילין ונמנע ממאכלות אסורות and refrains from forbidden foods וביעות אסורות and forbidden sexual relationships כמפורש בתורה which is explicitly mentioned לתורה ונמצא מקפיד על מצוות עשה שהוא חייב בהן ואינו עובר על לא תעשה so a person is particular in observing the, the מצוות they're obligated in and refraining from the things we're not allowed to engage in הרי זה הולך בדרך העם הגלויה this person is following the common explicit road of the Torah now very quickly, we're used to being taught that we want to be special. We don't want to be commoners. We don't want to be like everybody else. We're not peasants. So why am I stuck on this common road? I'm saying common. It's relevant to the masses. It's something that is in common between the giants of the Jewish people and the regular people and the Jewish people. כשם שאסורה מלאכה בשבת על יהושע בן נון, וחייב הוא בישיבת סוכה בחג, just like Yehoshua bin Nun, Joshua, was not allowed to violate Shabbat, and he has to sit in a sukkah on the Yom Tov. כך אסורה מלאכה בשבת על כלל ישראל, וחייבים הם בשבעה בחג הסוכות. We are also obligated <coughs> to observe Shabbat and to sit in a sukkah. Yehoshua bin Nun is not exempt from this because he is the leader of the Jewish people. בין אלה שנסתלקו כבר מן העולם ובין הבאים אחריהם עד סוף כל הדורות. This is true, whether in those in the past generations and today, we're all obligated in mitzvot. Equally. By the way, there's a, a book that was printed, actually two books now, in Israel, defending a certain uh, evil person who goes by the title Rabbi, about why this person has an obligation, a religious obligation, as the spiritual leader of the generation, to engage in forbidden sexual relationships in halakha, because he's saving the Jewish people because of that. And this is the world that you're living in right now. And Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam is telling you, Rabbi Yoshua ben Nun, uh, Yoshua ben Nun and yourself and your rabbi and uh, they all have to keep halakha the common road nobody has an excuse not to keep the law we say it's the explicit road this is something that is understood by everyone that you can understand the Torah says to take a lulav and a tolk so you can understand you have to do it there's not much you need to know in order to know that you're obligated in this mitzvah so the Rishonim have a question why is it that the generation of the flood was punished in the first place? Did they have a Torah? They didn't have a Torah. So what, what, what does the Kadosh Baruch have on them? What did they do wrong? They did whatever they wanted to do. So what? They stole. Who cares? There was no Torah telling them not to. So how could they be punished? It's not rhetorical. What about boundaries? Like it's common sense not to like go into someone else's boundary and take what's known. This is common sense. There's a, it should be self-understood without a Kadosh Buchu coming and telling you that you cannot steal something from somebody else. Somebody asked me a question. What does Halakha say about stealing from someone who's not Jewish? Before you ask me this question, what Halakha says, you're talking about stealing. Halakha doesn't need to tell you anything about stealing for you to know that you're not allowed to steal. 
I mean, what, what kind of question is that? No, if halakha actually has details about stealing, Rambam rules that stealing from a non-Jew is a biblical prohibition. So even in halakha, it doesn't make a difference. But this is something you don't need to ask in the first place. And that's why the word we use for it is giluya. It's explicit. This is something that a person should know. V'od will say, Somebody who's on the intimate road, and they understand the depth of Shabbat. So now we're getting into a concept we'll dabble more in next week. The depth of Shabbat. And a person spends their Shabbat engaging in deep thought about the creation of the world, the process of the creation of the world. And they therefore attain what he calls inward kidusha, inward sanctity. The Rambam in the laws of uh, uh, Yisodei Torah, maybe chapters 2, 3, 4, the Rambam over there discusses what Maaseh Bereshit, Maaseh Merkava, what they are in these, these celestial chariots of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Much of that comes from pondering the world, human existence, the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu created us, and understanding that there is a God in this world, that the, every detail, when you walk in nature, and you see a flower, when you see thing, when you understand the depth of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's creations, you're now dealing in Maaseh Merkava, Maaseh Bereshit. You're dealing in big, deep concepts that Hasidim would deal in on Shabbat. It's not just about not putting certain kinds of foods on the hot plate or what color wine you use for Kiddush. Sitting at a Shabbat table means immersing yourself in an experience which will ultimately bring you to what Rabbeinu Abraham will call later a Pgiya Elohit, a divine encounter. If you look at Source 7, you don't have to read it with me now. But if you look at Source 7, I quoted there the Rambam. The Rambam who says that Tzitzit and Mezuzah are two interesting mitzvot. The reason he gives for them, again, it's not a reason, meaning it's not why HaKadosh Baruch gave us his mitzvot. But Atam, something the Rambam says. You know what? I'm tempted. Let's just look at it together. In Source 7, the Rambam writes... In Source 7, the last two lines, this could also be on page 9 if you want in English. Every time a person enters and exits the room, a person will encounter the oneness of Hashem's name. He'll remember the love. He'll wake up from his sleepiness. And the distractions of being lost in the, the nonsense of time. And they'll know that the only thing that really lasts forever is one's connection and understanding of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And immediately after seeing the mezuzah, a person will do teshuvah. Not a mindless tapping of the mezuzah every time you walk in and out of a room. When you encounter your mezuzah, you encounter Imagine if every time you walked in and out of a room and you walked by the mezuzah, you would stop for a moment and have this awe, this, wow, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is here. HaKadosh Baruch Hu created me. I love HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves me. This is a relationship that I'm in. There are mitzvot that you do. I'm, I'm doing Averot. Every time you walk by your mezuzah, it's Yom HaKippurim all over again. Imagine such an experience. 
This is the relationship that a chassid has with mitzvot. It's not about putting on 17 pairs of tefillin. It's about putting on your pair of tefillin, but knowing what to ponder about a kadosh baruch Hu when you're wearing those tefillin. It's not about how many knots you have in your tzitzit, or how many pairs of them you wear. But to know how to take one pair of tzitzit, and know how to use it properly. And a person will rise to the state of inner Kiddushah, like the Torah says, you'll be holy for your God. And somebody who truly understands the implications of forbidden foods and limits their intake even of kosher foods. Remember I told you in the beginning, the Rambam, Abraham and Rambam has this goal eventually of abstinence, of perishut. This person is walking on the individual road, don't worry, I will get back to food. And I say that this is the, the individual road, because not every Torah observant Jew will reach this path, ever. It's not for everyone. You can live your life observing all Tariyad mitzvot, and you'll be okay if you never reach this road. We said it's an inner road. Because it was never explicitly obligated to a person. And a person who violates the intimate road, meaning they walk by their mezuzah, and they don't ponder the greatness of HaKadosh Baruch every time they walk by. I'm doing my vidui now. That person won't get punished for it. At the hands of a human court which is an interesting idea. It means that Rabbeinu Avraham believes that a person will be held up to a standard after 120 years. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, you could have done more, you could have understood me more. You had the intellectual capacity, the emotional capacity to connect with me as much as you connected to your favorite sports team. And you invested that energy somewhere else, not in me. We can't deal with that on a human court level, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu and us, we have a reckoning to deal with HaKadosh Baruch Hu on that level. When it came to food, not indulging in things. Yes. Many, many of us, I, I mean, I know I, I, I uh, will have difficulty distinguishing between the way that you're talking about this and the people who are saying, you know, every time you're in front of, uh, in front, you're always in front of God, so you should be dressed to be queen all the time, you should wear a hat and Morning dress and all of this sort of thing, and and at the same time that you know any time you're not like getting close to God is a, a, a is bacteria Why? If I heard some some idiot the other day talking about this, he was banging on about why are you listening to music in your car? There's not so many shurim you could listen to instead of like this good idiot anyway. You know, I, I struggle with how do we talk, tell the difference between what you're talking about and what these idiots that's a fascinating question and like I said this is going to be part of a, a two-part tour so God willing also next week I'm going to touch on this more on that part of the conversation but this week I'll tell you the following and that is that I think a lot of what this is is a difference in quality 
not necessarily in quantity. So for example, Rabbeinu Muhammad Rambam, when he talks about foods later in his book, he gives it, it's not about, oh, you know, you don't have to eat everything in the Shiviti learning form, because just because it's kosher doesn't mean you have to eat it. How many people have told you that before? That's not what he's talking about. Rather, Rabbeinu Muhammad Rambam makes a very compelling case as to eating foods that are only healthy for a person. Eating things that won't harm a person's body, even in the short term. You want to have some, but you know that it's a, to, to improve the way you live your life already, so even though it's kosher, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's healthy. Rabbeinu Abraham is telling us, this is a path, a book in which he's going to talk about both paths. The path of the common road and the path of chasidut. And right now we're feeling like, well, so I'm not on the level of chasidut, so, so what, everything that I do is a waste of time, I listen to music in my car, it's not... Rabbeinu Abraham is not, not splitting up the world in such a black and white way. And this whole idea of, of, by the way, I don't know which neighborhood you live in that people are complaining at the music you play in your car. Uh, but... <laughs> it was not, see, it's, it's always our fault at the end of the day. <laughs> but that's obviously not the approach that Rabbeinu Abraham is getting at. It's about, and it's about knowing... Who is able to do this? Rabbeinu Abraham is not saying this is a requirement for anyone. And like I told you, if you're complaining to somebody else about their not being on, on a certain path, then you don't belong on this path anyways. And the Ramchal, Ramchal, which is an important source here, because that's normally where people try to blame all their chasidut from. And maybe this will be the last source we'll do for today. Look with me on page uh, 6. The Ramchal writes in the first sentence, Daniel, this is about your friend. When we're talking about chasidut, we, we have to be very careful. We have to explain it properly. There are many, many things that people do under the cloak of piety. And they're nothing but shells of piety. It's a nice translation, but it's not as nice. Golmi is like the golem. It's like a... They're not piety. They're, they're false piety. And they lack shape, form, and there's no way to fix them. These people are beyond hope. Because they think that they're chasidim, but they don't even realize what true chasidut is. And this truly comes down to a lack of true in-depth study. Or as some chachamim would call it, it's an it's a intellectual laziness of sorts. These people don't require from themselves, you know, it's very easy to put on uh, another pair of tefillin or to add a, a three mezuzot on your doorpost as much as to stop and develop the, the thought and the mind and the heart to understand mitzvot deeper. And because of this, people are always looking to do more. It's, I don't want to open bottles on Shabbat. Or I don't want to, because that's much easier in observing Shabbat better than dealing with what the Rabbeinu Abraham is talking about, which is really connecting to a Shabbat. These people have given piety a repulsive odor in the eyes of most people. And especially among those intelligent among the masses. They see this type of piety and they're turned off from it. And they think 
that piety consists of foolish things and is counter to intelligence and sound knowledge. They think that to be a chassid, you have to add all kinds of extra prayers and supplications. All kinds of long confessions. A lot of crying. A lot of prostrations. Interestingly enough, as it goes against what we just said earlier. And all kinds of self-afflictions. That a person will destroy himself through them. Like immersing in the snow. By the way, the Ramchal is a Kabbalist. You're familiar with that, right? I had a next-door neighbor in Yerushalayim. He disappeared for, for two days. I don't know what happened. When I was living in the old city, I shared an apartment. Basically, one guy had an apartment. He put a wall down the middle and rented out both halves to each one of us. And this guy disappeared. And I was worried, what happened to him? I called him. Nothing. I didn't know what happened to him. He comes the next day. It was almost midnight the next night. I said, where have you been? He said, don't even ask. I said, I just asked. Tell me what happened. He said, I just got arrested by Mishteret Israel, by the Israeli police. What happened? He said, you know, I'm part of a yeshiva of Mekubalim, and they said we have to do tikkun hasheleg and roll over in the snow, so I heard it was snowing in the Hermon, in the mountains of the Hermon, so I got on a bus, and I went all the way up there, and I looked for a quiet spot, and I took off all my clothes, and I started rolling over in the snow, and doing my, my tikkun. He said, out of nowhere, this jeep shows up, with guys with their guns pointed at me, I said, what happened? I said, I was on a perimeter fence and the soldiers have a sensor on the perimeter fence that when you touch it, it immediately says that a terrorist is coming through. They came in, they arrested him. They, he didn't have clothes, didn't have an ID. They, they, the poor guys, they had to help him out to get a police station. They held him overnight in booking over there and then they released him to come back to, the, the, to our apartment the next day. The, the Ramchal is talking about this. He's a Mekuba. You can't get more Mekuba than Ramchal. And the Ramchal says, like immersing in the snow, and these kind of things. And then he says at the end, Chasidut is something that requires deep thought. Only truly wise people can understand this in the first place. And then he says in that paragraph on page 7 in the left column, he says exactly what Rabbi Abraham the Rambam is saying. That there is mitzvot hamutalot ad kol Yisrael. Kvar yiduot hen chovatan yidua. They already, these are mitzvot that everyone knows. They're a common road that people have to be on. And he discusses the ideas of chasut here more, which perhaps I'll ask you to read on your own. But he compares it to love between a husband and a wife, between two lovers, between siblings, between two friends. There's what you have to do. So it's like the guy who his wife tells him, you know, it's our 20-year anniversary and you've never told me you love me. And I'm worried, you know, I, I, I say people tell me they love each other all the time, you, you never say those words to me. And he says, you know, I told you I love you at our chupa, and if anything changes, I'll let you know. This attitude of I do what I have to do, I told you I love you once, that's enough for you, no? Why do I have to constantly reassure you? Why do I have to always tell you about love? What, are you so insecure? You're insecure about our love? You're always worried? Well, yeah, it's part of being in a relationship with somebody. You could always do what you have to do, but sometimes if you really love somebody, you go out of your way to do the things for them that you don't have to do. You don't have to make your spouse a cup of coffee in the morning. It's not on the list of requirements in being in a relationship. But if you do, you don't have to put up with the things that your the moods that your spouse is in, but sometimes you do. 
and you're there for them, and even it upsets you, but you're there anyways, and you put an arm around them, I love you, I care about you. Why? Because you love somebody. The relationship of a chassid with a Kaddish Baruch Hu is to be proactive in this love with a Kaddish Baruch Hu. To do things, it's not necessarily about doing more quantitatively, but being involved in a more quality love with a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And you're right, it does require clarity. It requires tremendous clarity. And Bezat Hashem, next week, we're going to deal with, so what does it really look like? What are the dangers of this chassidut? Who's allowed to embark on this road of chassidut? And what value is there really for those who will involve themselves in chassidut, but are blatantly violating other mitzvot? So you mentioned a person who may be criticizing your kashrut because they themselves are so special, but now they're criticizing you. They're speaking Lashon Hara. They're hurting someone's feelings. Do they even get mitzvot for that? Rabbeinu Abraham is going to put forth his argument that a person doesn't get any mitzvah, not at all, for doing chasidut before they have become a tzaddik, completely righteous, on the common road, which is not so common. The only reason it's called common is because all of us are obligated in it. There's an interesting story about Rav Kook, Rav Shalom. Rav Kook was uh, the first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of the state of Israel, uh, of, not sorry, first chief rabbi of Israel before the state of Israel. Rav Kook once had a visit from a certain Rebbe who had a custom to pray alone. I don't know if you're familiar with this. There are certain Hasidic courts that the Rebbe doesn't pray with the minyan. He's not supposed to pray with the people. So what they do is they have a special room with a little window or something that the Rebbe hides in there. Uh, I don't know what they do, but they're in there. I wish I had such a room also in the middle of tefillah to just hide in. But it's there in the, in the corner. And... <laughs> so, so no, I'm about it, but it's, this person was known to be a big tzaddik. It was, it was visiting Rav Kook. It's not, not a Rebbe from a WhatsApp generation, uh, Rabbanit. So, <laughs> so he was there. And uh, so he came to visit Rav Kook. And it came time for Mincha. Rav Kook said, come to the Bet Midrash to pray Mincha. He's like, yeah, I'll come, I'll come. No, no, come with me. He said, no, no, I'll, soon. And he says, what? why are you not coming to Mincha? He says, oh, you know, well, we have a thing. The Rebbe, I don't pray with the people. And Rav Kook grabbed him by his shoulders and pushed him to the Bet Midrash. He says, listen. I don't care who you are, but you also have to follow Shulchan Aruch. And he pushed him into the Berkhanesed and prayed Michal with him. We're living in a world that many of us hear this term Chasidut, and we're thinking two things. One, that all these people around us that are involved in Chasidut. And two, we think that maybe we're not Chasidim. And the reason I'm bringing up this concept in this forum is because in order to learn all the texts that we're going to learn in the future, we have to accept two things. That the false piety of the people around us is not truly piety. It's not chasidut and the understanding of our rabbi's reading of chasidut. And two, is again that inferiority complex which we discussed last week. Rabbeinu Abraham ben Rambam is giving us the ability, the knowledge that you observing halakha, you fulfilling the mitzvot the way they're written, you observing Judaism the way it was done for thousands of years, it's not you being less observant, it's not you being unrighteous. It's the most pious thing you can do. This person is called a tzaddik, a kasher, Atam, Anav, titles like that, you don't give everybody. And Bezat Hashem, hopefully next week, we'll be doing the next part of the shiur. Uh, if I can recommend that at the end of today, at any point in time, if you look at this letter to the Jews of Yemen, which the Rambam uh, discusses there, the qualitative difference between Judaism and other religions, in which he attributes also, that someone who's not familiar with the, the intellectual rigor needed to understand Hasidut properly, will easily get carried away. Oh, look, all the religions, we're all the same, we're all similar, we all believe in Hashem, we all do mitzvot, we all... 
But really, a person lacks the ability to understand what real chasidut is, and because of that, they get carried away by other things. B'zal Hashem, that's for next week. I'd love to take any questions or conversations or anything else that comes up now. I'm here, B'zal Hashem.